0: I look back and I think it was all a bit strange, I think it was almost like a denial, oh we don't want to talk about disability, we don't want our family to be seen as being anything different from any other family in the street, you know, so it was all kind of like, well just pretend that everything's okay. I wasn't lucky to be mainstreamed, actually it was a fundamental right that I had and so that led me to that training course to learn more about What other rights do I have? What other rights do disabled people have that maybe aren't built into law, but maybe should be, and and we should be fighting for them? Um, Because we are entitled to to live in an inclusive society. They don't understand the struggle that many um, people with disabilities have had to fight for, for just ordinary things in the way of employment, education, housing, all those things are areas where disabled people have had to fight to have basic needs met.
1: Welcome to Generations of Change. I'm Anya Kelly-Costolo, a young blind journalist and advocate known for my delight in asking endless questions. I mainly grew up in the 2000s, and I vividly remember the camaraderie of being at camps with other blind kids and teens. In the real world at school, I was surrounded by sighted people. I was a good student, but I remember the shame I felt when a teacher asked me why I was sitting alone at lunch, and the frustration of having to fight to be in the jazz band just because I couldn't see. While at uni, I stumbled into a role advocating for accessibility law. Suddenly, it was my job to connect with and empower other disabled people to be part of a call for change, and I had to find the courage to build relationships with a whole lot of virtual strangers. That job would end up bringing me into community and solidarity with students, writers, academics, business people and advocates of all ages. Disability was our shared experience and together we would champion change. Our efforts built on decades of leadership from disabled people. But how was it growing up disabled 40 or 50 years ago or acquiring disability as an adult? How has Aotearoa changed? How has it not? What unplanned moments would shape the lives of the visionary disabled people who dedicated themselves to making inclusion the norm? Join me for one of seven conversations where both of us get to find out.
2: Hi, Joan, it's really lovely to be talking to you today.
0: Could you introduce yourself for me? Sure. Um, My name's Joanne, I um, am deaf and I'm autistic and I'm also a parent of um, an autistic adult son. And can
2: you tell me about some of the advocacy areas that you've focused on in the last couple of years as well? Um,
0: In the last couple of years in particular I've focused on education and, and a lot of that's to do with my own history when I look back and my educational experiences. They didn't pick up that I was deaf until I was eight, which is quite remarkable when I think about it, and it's quite late. Um, There was never any... The word disability was never used. It wasn't used in our household, and it wasn't even used in the education system when it came to me, but having said that, I had this obvious impairment. There were no supports or accommodations for that impairment either. The only... um, Accommodation, if you like, that they made was that I got to sit up the front, which some people might have considered to be more of a punishment than, <laughs> than an accommodation. But yeah, I mean, I was lucky when I think about it because I, I survived in that academic environment and I put that down to my autism. Yeah, you know, it made me um, focus very much on the academic and I really enjoyed that. But I look back and I don't think I should have had to struggle so much through that system. I think I should have been given help, and I didn't get any.
2: Totally, because I guess in terms of uh, being able to listen to the teachers, and and so would you have been using a combination of your leftover hearing and lip reading then? Yeah,
0: yep. yep. Okay, so predominantly lip reading, um, which was self-taught. So you, there were no lessons in that. There was no never any offer of, hey, let's teach you some New Zealand sign language. The mainstream environment. It was basically sink or swim. Mm.
2: I know you didn't get your autism diagnosis till later in life. When you were a child, did you um, know that you were neurodiverse in some way? Did you have any awareness of that?
0: No, I, and I think part of that was because when I went through that whole education system or even in society, you didn't really see autistic people. They were, I'm guessing, in institutions or, you um, Many people my age just simply weren't diagnosed because it didn't really become a, um, a mainstream diagnosis until the 80s after um, some pushing by some strong advocates. So no idea that I was autistic but just knew I was different. I didn't relate to people very well in terms of how they saw things and I just put that down to being a bit eccentric.
2: Yep and how about in your kind of family
0: environment? My parents were English and they came out here in the 60s and they found it very difficult themselves to integrate initially. Life was very different here compared to back home. Um, My father had come out of the army so he was used to an army way of life and all of a sudden he came here to uh, and was employed and it was very different for him. My mother had grown up with um, servants and then she had married into the military. So coming here was just so vastly different. They didn't have initially friends or connections. So that made things challenging for them in terms of trying to maybe access services. Um, Also, I guess if you immigrate to a country, you kind of feel like you initially don't belong, you know, that you're you're fighting for your place in the society that you decided to go into, so I think for them it was like they didn't want to rock the boat by suddenly talking about disability, or we've got children that have disabilities. I have another family member who also has an impairment, and that impairment was much more obvious, so I guess that diverted um, my parents' time and energies as well. She got some support, even then very limited, Um, and I look back and I think it was all a bit strange i think it was almost like a denial oh we don't want to talk about disability we don't want our family to be seen as being anything different from any other family in the street you know so it was all kind of like well just pretend that everything's okay
2: that's interesting that them needing to come to terms with you know belonging in a new place could actually have quite a knock-on effect um, on that disability level but now of course you talk about disability a lot. Yep. And can you tell me some of the things that maybe have helped you to get to that point where you feel comfortable and that it's something important to talk about?
0: I think for me, one of the biggest um, differences for me in terms of how I saw disability was me- meeting other disabled people and realising it's okay to acknowledge that you're disabled, it's okay to acknowledge that your impairments may create some disability because society doesn't accommodate you it's okay um, to ask and need those accommodations because actually probably everybody needs some sort of accommodation in some in some way. But if you're disabled, it's much more obvious. You know, like a shy person might need a bit of encouragement to draw them out. But people who have a disability, they just need different accommodations, you know. I remember joining Facebook in about 2009 or something like that and initially I was just, you know, putting up family pictures or you know, maybe the odd photo. I hadn't even joined any groups and then all of a sudden I, I kind of discovered Facebook groups and I thought, oh hold on, this is something different. And I joined one or two and I immediately felt, ah right, okay, I felt like I found my place. For autistics to go into group settings is very challenging so I, I didn't really go out and socialise, I didn't really go out and meet in groups or if I did I just felt really out of place so I never generated those disability discussions whereas online it became much easier to do so and it gave me more confidence I think to formulate my own points of view.
2: Yeah, is that um, about the time that you got your autism diagnosis, as well.
0: Um, yeah. So initially, I um, I joined some of these groups, and I joined a couple of autism groups because I had my autistic son. And then the more I was participating, the more I realised that I actually identified with the autistic woman in particular that I was encountering. And I thought oh, it was a bit strange. Also, at the same time, I was having counselling. And the counsellor said to me, "Oh, you—you you know, some of your answers are a little bit unusual. You know, you have some very black and white thinking." And uh, when he, as soon as he said that, I thought, "Oh, hold on a minute—I've heard that phrase before <laughs> when it comes to autism." And. Um, he suggested that I meet with his colleague who did a lot of pre-assessments for people who were seeking an autism diagnosis. I filled out these online these forms that she'd given me. I said, I'm really not sure I am, you know, because I don't do this and I don't do that and ratted off all the things I didn't do. And she said, yeah, but you do. And, you know, and she, she went through my answers and we had a big discussion and then she said, you know, actually, I think you need to consider pursuing a formal diagnosis. Hmm. So that was quite interesting because I would have expected her to have taken the other point of view of, no, no, you know, you're definitely not autistic, you know, let that go on your way sort of thing. Yes.
2: I think it's very easy for people to to still treat autism as a thing that you don't want to be, right? Yeah. And as a thing to avoid. Yeah,
0: I think I was very lucky. So meeting those right people, you know, and they don't all really have to be disabled, you can meet the right allies hmm. who... Um, just create those opportunities for you and also open doors for you, you know, they, they validate your experiences.
2: Yeah, did having a formal diagnosis sort of impact your relation to disability, did that make it easier to talk about?
0: I think mean, it can be very easy to feel like you're some sort of imposter if you don't have a formal diagnosis, even as a disability advocate you can feel like an imposter, you know, because oh, I'm not as disabled as that person, but actually it's not about your level of impairment, it's about your level of engagement and your passion to advocate. Mm.
2: Another area I wanted to touch on is the intersections of having different impairments.
0: Initially I kind of just, the deafness was such an ingrained part of me that I didn't, almost didn't consider it an impairment. But I didn't kind of fit in with the deaf community either because I hadn't grown up learning New Zealand sign language, I didn't necessarily understand. Um, why New Zealand Sign Language was so important to them from a cultural perspective. I've spent a lot of time trying to talk to other people from, who have other impairments to get their understanding because I can't speak for the Deaf culture if I'm not um, uh, immersed in it, but I can still learn from it. I think it's really important to have that um, intersection where you're learning from other people and also learning more about yourself. You know, I, I learned about why um, for me, why autism was actually a, a benefit being deaf as well, because it meant I had less sensitivity to say noise that a lot of people have, um, but both impacted on each other. Because I was autistic, I was able to cope with the academic side. I could hyperfocus. My, one of my hyperfocuses was reading. I was really quite obsessive about reading, yeah. but that meant that I could succeed on an academic level without accommodation for being deaf. You know, but other deaf people might not have had that benefit. I was in year ten, fourth form, and this boy came into the um into my class and they said to me, Oh, we'd like him to sit with you because he's the same as you. <laughs> so okay, this boy was um he had, you know, some limited hearing, he, he mostly lip read, and they wanted to know if he could succeed like I was. And I thought, Oh, actually, you know, people aren't like, all like right, me, there's no way he's going to do this. Because the only way I got through high school was I would take notes all through class, but that meant watching the teacher, so my notes would be all over the line, you know, would be on nice and neatly on the line, so I'd be taking notes. But then I'd go home, and in the evening I'd have to transcribe those notes again. So so my my day started at 6am and it finished about 2am. And I thought I looked at this chap that I was being asked to assist, so I said to him, I don't think he's going to... You're going to make it here if you don't give them some accommodations. As an adult, I went back to the high school and I said, how come I didn't get any accommodations? How come you guys didn't actually offer me some genuine support? And they said, oh, we're waiting for your parents to ask. When parents enrol a child who has additional needs at school, you're not given a brochure that says, hey, here's some funding things that you might need to know about or here's some stuff around um, additional support that children might need. You're not given anything. So you're expected to blunder your way through the Ministry of Education website, talk to other parents, which fortunately we have now with Facebook groups, but you know, if you go back 10, 20 years, that wasn't an option. Mm.
2: One other thing I wanted to talk about is how, how having an autistic son may have um, like shaped your perspective to disability, but also to parenting. Um, a lot of, obviously there are a lot of non-disabled parents um, who have disabled kids and, sometimes those of us in the disability community who are or aren't parents can feel like some parents can be really good allies and can listen to other people in the community really well and some parents struggle with that. Um, what do you think your perspective has been being, being a parent who's also disabled?
0: Um, I think I always felt on, on the back foot, I, I, to be honest. I always felt like other parents were judging and I, I don't know if that's just the New Zealand culture Because I think, I see it, other parents judging other parents all the time. But when you're disabled, you kind of feel a lot more self-conscious about that. I'm advocating on a rights-based approach. Parents who are not disabled or don't have disabled children don't even consider rights. They just walk up to a school and their child will go through and, you know, be allowed to enrol and on on it'll go. when, when you're disabled or you've got a disabled child, you're fighting for every single little right that you can, and, it, and it's much more tiring as a parent. Yes.
2: How did you initially learn about sort of rights for disabled people or, or you know, that sort of human rights-based approach?
0: Um, and I, I would say for me, it was through social media, through um, the Facebook groups that I was in, uh, and also through real-life contacts. So I, my, one of my neighbours has um, two autistic children, and She wanted to enrol one of her children at the local school and the principal said to her, I'll see you in court. And she said, OK. And, but then he backed down. And she did enrol them. They were both mainstreamed, even though they had significant impairments. She said, oh, my child has a right to enrol. Mm. She had a limited context in which she knew she had rights. Whereas I didn't even know that. The UNCRPD stands for the United Nations Convention on the rights of persons with disabilities and I became interested in that document because I realised that it actually um, clearly specified some rights that disabled people were entitled to Um, and one of those things for me for example was around the right to an inclusive education that actually I I wasn't lucky to be mainstreamed, actually it was a fundamental right that I had and so that led me to that training course to learn more about what other rights do I have, what other rights do disabled people have that maybe aren't built into law but maybe should be and and we should be fighting for them Um, because we are entitled to to live in an inclusive society but society hasn't kind of got there yet.
2: Absolutely, have you thought of your maybe a bit of a vision of where if if our rights were all being upheld in the education space, what would that what
0: would that look like for you? Ooh. For me, one of the things it would look like is that parents wouldn't feel like... They wouldn't dread the phone calls from school telling them that little Johnny has to go home. They wouldn't be frustrated at their child only being allowed to attend part-time. They wouldn't have to deal with um, suspensions, exclusions, stand-downs, even um, restraint. And um, their child would just be accepted. But it, to me it's much bigger that if we get it right there, that society as a whole will just learn to accept people with disabilities as being just another human in their, in their sphere, in their circle, in their community. I think society kind of wants to have commonality, it wants to put people into groups. When I think about a, a, a cohort that I know who went through Teachers Training College, the training that they had one week on, if you like, special needs—a a term that I don't particularly like—but that's what they called it. That that week of special needs was zero training on autism. ADHD training, ADHD training was um, here. Watch this little video online, and then write a 400-word essay. Yeah, it's not practical, it's not hands-on. There was no engagement, no attempt to engage with, say, the disability community and get an autistic adult in to talk about those experiences in the classroom.
2: Yeah, last week I was speaking on a, a panel at an inclusive education symposium and one thing that I did notice that, uh, you know, the teachers who were in the room, once they were hearing five of us disabled people talking about our experiences, they got, oh yeah, this is really important, this is valuable to be hearing from disabled people.
0: And sometimes it can be really beneficial. I had a a teacher approach me to say, um, oh, would you come and give a talk to some teacher aides? So I did a talk to teacher aides and it was really well received. Well, I wrote it, my daughter spoke to it, she's very articulate, and it was really well received. So then we got asked, well, could you come and do that same training to teachers. But the most amazing thing for me was that the Senko came and said, you know, I used to teach your son and I, looking back, I was not a good teacher for your son because I didn't actually understand and know about autism. Now, I I know I would do things differently. So to me, I think if you make a difference for one teacher, that's huge.
2: That's quite a courageous thing to do. When you're doing quite a lot, obviously you're a parent and very involved in advocacy and probably other things as well. Um, I know you do landscape photography, yes. for example. Um, is that something, is the photography something that you would do when you're kind of starting to feel quite stressed or burned out or like there's a lot going on? Or what, what sort of things do you um, do?
0: When I had um, counselling a few years ago, I, the counsellor said to me, do one thing each day that will, br- that will bring you joy, even if it's just a, sitting down quietly with a cup of tea, because sometimes you can get burnt out by everything that you're doing or disheartened by lack of progress or just feel you know down because it's winter and there's you know long grey days mm-hmm. so i put that to heart and i and i got back into i used to do photography a little bit but i got right back into it and i thought well, every day it probably helps that i've got a dog but every day i take the dog out for a walk and i can take my phone because if i don't take my camera so there's always a, a method to take uh, to do your photography now. And I think that that's, that's been a real, um, a real help against sort of that burnout or feeling down because you, you look at a much bigger picture, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're quite tiny. For all the hardships that are out there, there's a lot of beauty out there as well. Mm, yep. That's a
2: beautiful way to think about yeah. it, yeah. And finally, if you had any advice for your 20-year-old self or younger self, can you think of what that might be?
0: I think it would be more of a realisation that, you know, you're good enough, you don't have to kind of overcompensate for the fact that you've got an impairment. I think if I look back at my 20 year old self, I felt like I had to justify my employment, you know, so, you know, you'd go the extra mile and a half and um, I think I I did that and the employer benefited, but I don't think it was healthy for my self esteem and I think so I look back now and I think you know actually I should have been kinder to myself and said you know you're good enough you don't have to do the work of two people just because you you know you've got an impairment and you're employed and so um, I think that's one of the fast ways to burn out.
2: Absolutely yeah and and recognising I guess in that that it's okay to admit to yourself that um, your impairment does mean that the way you are is different to other people, and that that doesn't have to be a bad thing, even if other people are um, sort of treating you as if it is a negative thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, very much so. Because I think there's that perception that somehow you're less than or, or you're not quite as good as that person, but actually you are. You know, we are all equal, regardless of impairment, we are all equal. And everybody's got their strengths and everybody's got their challenges as well.
1: In conversation with Joanne Dakem. The music is SIVA by June. Development and funding thanks to Imagine Better. Edited by Juliana Machado. Visual direction by Benjamin Brooking. Produced by Anya Kelly-Costolo.